that way <laughs> the whole time. Um, now, you guys have been in, uh, I guess, a short series looking at um, four milestones of, of the life of Jesus. And so you've looked at the death of Jesus. You've looked at the resurrection of Jesus. Last week was the ascension. Uh, and today we're going to look at Acts 2 and basically Pentecost and the sending of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I would ask that you would join me. I'm just going to pray, uh, and then we'll dig in. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can open it up, read it uh, so freely in this country. And God, today as we open up your word, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would help our, our minds to understand, that you would stir our hearts to believe, and Lord, that you would equip our hands to live and act and uh, be your faithful followers in this world. I pray this in your son's wonderful name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. I want to start by just asking a question. Uh, the question is, what is the driving force of your life? What fuels you? What drives you? What motivates you? What pushes you to live as you currently are living? What is the driving factor? Everyone in this room is driven by something. There is something that is causing us to live our lives a certain way. And there, there are many things that could lead us to live a certain way. Uh, for some people, guilt is a significant driving factor. They have made decisions and taken action in the past, and they are shamed by that. They are filled with guilt, and that actually drives them towards their future and how they live. For some of us, it might be fear. Uh, because, again, of past experiences, maybe we've been hurt, maybe we uh, have had bad experiences, and so that leads us, drives us to live our lives in fear. For some of us, it might be anger and resentment. Uh, for someone like myself, uh, the need for approval has been a significant driving factor in my life. The need to have others like me, approve me, affirm me, has led to me making all sorts of decisions in my life. For others, and particularly in our context, I think materialism and pleasure is driving culture and how they live their lives. The truth is, everyone here is driven by something. The question is, who or what is driving your life? Now, we're going to read through uh, Acts 2 today. We're actually going to read through the whole chapter. Now, if you read through the book of Acts, you, you basically, you, you're led to ask a question of like, how did this happen? How do a bunch of marginalized, fearful people in, in a society that's dominated by a Roman Empire, how does a small group of men and women that are pretty poor, they're very marginalized, they don't have a lot of resource, how by the end of Acts have they turned the world upside down? How does that happen? And as you read, you're like, this is not possible. And it leads us to get to the question of like, well, how is that possible? And hopefully by the end we're going to find out because it's the Holy Spirit empowering His people to do what He's called them to do. So should we finish the sermon? Just end it there since I gave you the answer. We're all done. You're ready to go. Um, so we're going to read through this, this passage. So I'm going to read through Acts 2. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn there. We're going to read the whole chapter through, and then I'm going to make some observations um, after we've read through it, and then hopefully land with some helpful, helpful things for us to think through. Acts chapter 2 starts with this. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived... 
They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belong, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked them, saying they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. But these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. I love that. That's very sarcastic. It's like, they're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Give them an hour. <laughs> but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your older men shall dream dreams. Even my male servants and my female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes to great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we've just seen this. This is awesome. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Thank God for that. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also was well in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's still dead. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And all of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. We have received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. And we've seen that today. Every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from the crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and those who were added to the day were about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's a great passage. That's an awesome passage of Scripture. And so what I want to do, I want to, I want to go through, uh, particularly want to stay with Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and so I want to stay with kind of Luke. I want to go to his actual first book, the book of Luke, pick up a few things that he speaks about uh, and kind of gets what Jesus' words are about the Holy Spirit. And then I want to walk through staying mostly with Luke as to how we understand the Holy Spirit and what is happening in this passage. And now I know when I speak about the Holy Spirit, uh, if you speak in any church, there are going to be different views on the Holy Spirit. There are different backgrounds that maybe we've experienced. I myself had a, a Pentecostal charismatic background. And so uh, some years ago when I heard the Holy Spirit, it made me like, oh, I'm very scared. Uh, and I was, I was fearful of the Holy Spirit because I was overreacting to some stuff that I had experienced. Um, and then I sort of started leading a church. And then we became a church who was very God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible. And we, we wanted to be careful of using the Holy Spirit's uh, even name and we we're worried about anything sort of Holy Spirity because we didn't want to be get, get lumped in over here. And so often when we talk about the Holy Spirit, um, there can be different responses, different reactions, different experiences. So we want to get into the Word. We just want to go, what does the Bible say? Uh, and the Bible seems to say that we shouldn't be scared of the Holy Spirit. The Bible seems to be saying we really need the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is is linked to the gospel. The gospel is not just Jesus. It is Jesus dead, Jesus risen, Jesus ascended, and Jesus sending the Spirit to His people. Amen? So let's look at, uh, firstly, what Jesus said. So at the end of Luke, uh, Luke 24, uh, Jesus spends some time with His disciples post-resurrection, and He explains to them, that the whole of the Old Testament was pointing to him, that he is there fulfilling it. And so he spends some time, we don't know exactly how long, but he basically tells them all of the law of Moses, all of the prophets, all of the Psalms, the whole of the Old Testament was pointing to me, and I have come and I'm fulfilling it. And then in Luke 24, 46, Jesus says, And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise 
of, the, of my Father upon you, but I say, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So that's essentially how he finishes the Gospel of Luke. And then Acts 1, which you would have got some of last week, uh, he kicks off, and this is what it says in verse 4. and says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard uh, from me, for John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So notice in Jesus' words... He's using language of proclaim the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. Be witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is to go from Jerusalem and eventually to all nations. It's the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit, which you need, who must come upon you. It is essential. The Holy Spirit is not a tack on. Don't leave. Don't go. Don't try without the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a pretty big mission. If you read it, uh, Matthew's account, Matthew, the way Matthew words it is that Jesus says to them, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, you're the only ones that are Christians, now make the world Christian. It'd be like, oh, how? <laughs> and Jesus is like, good question. You can't do that. It is not in your ability. You don't have the strength. You don't have the wisdom. You don't have the knowledge. You don't have the skills. You need the helper, the Holy Spirit. So Jesus clearly calls his disciples, gives them a mission to proclaim the gospel to the whole world, beginning in Jerusalem. And that in order to accomplish it, they need the Spirit. So then what do we see happen in Acts 2? Well, verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now the day of Pentecost, it's 50 days after the Passover. That's what Pentecost means. It's a massive moment. For the Jewish culture, okay? It's, it's a feast. Like, we, we don't understand feasts. Jews and proselytes are coming from all over the place, coming back to Jerusalem. It's basically, they're going to be bringing the first fruits of the harvest, and they're going to be worshipping and singing and eating and celebrating and thanking God. It's massive for them. It's huge for them. And so it's this really significant moment. The other piece of, uh, of the basically Pentecost is that 50 days after the, the Exodus in the Old Testament, God comes and visits Moses on Mount Sinai. And at that point, he gives them his law. The, the, the word is spoken, a new community is created, a new nation is given, and new people are then sent out. And so the whole idea of Pentecost is actually it's another picture of salvation. This is God doing some incredible things. It goes on then and says, And they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there's some weird stuff going on in this chapter. I'm going to acknowledge that. We're not going to be able to hit on everything. But what I do want you to see is the language of suddenly. And as the Spirit gave utterance. In other words, this is not something that they concocted. This moment is not something that they had control over other than being obedient to Jesus' words and going, okay, we will wait. And so they're there, they're praying, they're talking, and then God the Holy Spirit is sent. 
and they are all filled. But continue on and look at some of the next language. Now, there were dwelling in where? Jerusalem. Jews, devout men from every nation. So remember Jesus' call? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. This is some language to show there's something happening here which is moving. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 8, and how is it that we hear each of you speak in our own native language? We hear them, listen to these words, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. In other words, these men, these women who have gone into this room, they've prayed, the Holy Spirit falls. They then speak in tongues, speaking languages that others who have come from outside of Jerusalem, coming back into Jerusalem, could understand. And what are they being told? They're being told about the gospel. These men and women are just telling them about Jesus and preaching about Jesus, that he was died, that he rose, that he ascended. And so they are preaching the mighty works of God. It says they're all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said they are filled with new wine. And so again, we see the idea of Jerusalem and every nation. We see the disciples declaring the mighty works of God. They are proclaiming the gospel. And then Peter stands up. And now he is going to say what the Old Testament said. So that's what Jesus said. That's what happened. Now Peter goes to what the Old Testament says. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time going through this. I want to move through it pretty quickly. But essentially, Peter says, guys, they're not drunk. They haven't been to the tavern. They haven't been sitting and just drinking and drinking and drinking. And now they're acting weird. No, no, this is what the Bible said would happen. And then he gives three examples. So firstly, he goes to... The prophet Joel. So it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, addressed them, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ears to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And what he does now, he goes through uh, Joel 2, and he shows in Joel 2 that what Joel was saying, what, what Joel was prophesying, what Joel was predicting was essentially that the Pentecost experience would occur. This is what was said. This is what he said would happen. The Holy Spirit would come and fill his people. So this is that. Then he moves to David and he, he references Psalm 16, 8 to 1. And he uses this as scriptural proof that Jesus, the true Messiah, is proven because the true Messiah was predicted that the Messiah would rise again. That he would not only die, but he would rise again. So he's pointing back to David and saying, David said this in the Old Testament. This is what he said in Psalm 16. And this is the proof that the Old Testament was saying our Messiah would resurrect. And then he goes to David again in Psalm 110. And he says, basically, Psalm 110 is telling us that the risen Christ would now be the Messiah and our Lord and would Ascend. He would sit at the right hand of the Father. So, so in this particular part of the, the passage, you can go through it again in your own time. We're moving pretty quickly. But in this particular passage, he basically did what you've just done the last three sermons. Death, resurrection, ascension, and he's gone, oops, and, and this, that's Holy Spirit, weird things happen. Um, and this was the other piece that hasn't happened yet. This is the Spirit of God falling, filling, fueling, driving His people. 
So then what do we see happens? Verse 37, and now we've heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Turn away from your sin. Turn away as being your own God, your own master, and turn to the one who has proven that he is truly the God-man. Turn to Jesus and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other uh, words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. Immediately, people are saying, yes, we believe. Yes, we believe. We're we're turning. We're repenting. And then they're just baptizing people. I don't know how they that would have taken so long. Pretty cool picture. Just all of these people becoming followers of Jesus. 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. Signs and wonders happened. Right, you see this generosity and heart and they're in the temple and they're breaking bread and they're receiving food, praising God. Notice all throughout this, this, this chapter how often the gospel is preached. It's just, it's pretty much, like if you come to this church, you hopefully will hear the gospel just keeps getting preached all the time. It's like we're a band with one song. We just keep telling people about Jesus. That's what we do. Because it's the only good news there is. And this is all throughout this this passage. There's salvation through repentance and faith. It's followed by baptism, right? Baptism is such an important part of what we do as Christians that we, we basically do the outward symbolic act of what God has already, by the Holy Spirit, done in us internally. That we were once dead in trespasses and sins, but we have now been made alive to Jesus Christ. There's this devotion to the apostolic teaching. There's this beautiful picture of community, breaking of bread, generosity of heart. Like, what's happened? God the Holy Spirit has fallen. He's indwelling His people, empowering His people. They are proclaiming a message, and thousands of people are getting saved. Oh, dear Lord, please do that. Look at all the different things. Now, again, I grew up in a Pentecostal context. And for those of you who may be more of the Pentecostal charismatic, this is, I, I don't want to offend in any way. I'm not trying to do that. Um, but what I was taught in my upbringing was that you become a Christian and then you need like a second thing that happens when now you need the Holy Spirit because you don't have the Holy Spirit. And I just want to say, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when you've, you can't become a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Uh, jo couldn't have, like, have, it, have her eyes enlightened to the truth without the Holy Spirit working in her heart. Like We can't turn to Jesus without the Holy Spirit. You can't be a part of God's family apart from the Holy Spirit. But the flip side is, sometimes we think that's it of the Holy Spirit. It's like, okay, well, I'm a Christian now, I've got the Holy Spirit. Great. It's like, no, no, read, read the story 
This is not supposed to just be one-off thing that happens at salvation. This is supposed to be something that drives your life. That you're being fueled constantly every single day by the Holy Spirit. And this is what you're seeing. You're not just seeing some people speak in tongues. You're seeing people live radically different lives. Because the Holy Spirit has transformed them. Changed them. And so, what should we expect? When we read the book of Acts 2, I think we're left asking, well, okay, that's what happened to them there. What should happen to us here? Like, this is a story. This is telling us what happened, how we to understand what we should expect. And so I want to give you, I want to give you really two things that I think that we, for those of us in the room who are Christians, that we should expect with regard to the Holy Spirit. And I want, I want you to think about this in your own experience. And if you're with us and you're not a Christian, I would love you to listen to it and just ask how your life might be different if you repented, believed, and had the Holy Spirit indwell you. So, two things. Number one, I think we should expect an influencing power. Notice that they accused the disciples of being drunk. Uh, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 5.18, where he says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't want to ask who here has had this, but um, when someone is charged with drink driving, what, are the, what, is, the, what is the charge? What, what is, it's DUI. What does that stand for? Driving under the influence. Alcohol is influencing them. They've been charged with it. I wonder how many Christians would be charged with living under the influence of the power of the Holy Spirit. Because I think, I think a lot of us could say everything that we do, we, we could, like you can rock up on a Sunday, you, like you can play songs, you, you can do things uh, because God in His common grace just gives us faculties and agency and things that we, we can just do stuff. Uh, at our church, uh, through COVID, we were really, really challenged of, what we actually can't do. Like we can put on services, we can run life groups, we can do all this sort of stuff, and it, it has changed the way that we are now thinking about prayer. Because we would say we have not been dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We have been doing things in our human strength. And we sort of said, hey, if in like 100 years people look back and sort of said, oh, how did LCC achieve all of what happened? And we would love the answer to be, because they got on their knees and they prayed and the Holy Spirit did a bunch of stuff. That would be a cool answer. And so a Christian is not just someone who repents and believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's absolutely central. But a Christian is also one who is filled with the Spirit of the living God and experiences the living power of the Spirit in their lives. This is what we are seeing in this narrative. Now, again, my Pentecostal brothers and sisters would focus on the tongues, that tongues would be the primary evidence of the Holy Spirit. And I would say, I don't think that's how we're supposed to interpret that. And the reason is, is because if you read all of Luke, sometimes tongues happens when the Spirit falls, sometimes it doesn't. So as we read it, what we want to ask is, what are the repeatable things that seem to be there all the time? And what are some of the, the, the sort of unordinary things? Okay, so let me walk you through this really, really quickly. In Luke 3, there are three cases of the Holy Spirit coming upon people, and in Acts, there are ten. In Luke, 
Elizabeth and Zechariah in chapter 1, both are described as being full of the Spirit, and immediately they declare the goodness of God with joy, and Zechariah prophesies about the salvation of God. We see Jesus in Luke 3, the Spirit descends on him in the baptism, and the Father says, this is my Son in whom uh, I'm well pleased. And then in Luke 4, it says that he returns from his baptism full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And what happens there? Satan tempts him. Are you really the son of God? And what does Jesus do? Jesus keeps coming back to the Bible, to the word of God and proclaims it. He just keeps coming back to scripture. Shut up, fool. This is what the Bible says. I love it. Full of the Holy Spirit, he just proclaims the word. Acts 4, 1 to 8, we see Peter and John heal a, a lame man from birth. And then they're eventually arrested, not for the healing, but for teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus' resurrection. The rulers then ask him, by what power or name did you heal this lame man? And Peter just like, let me just tell you about Jesus. He just starts preaching the gospel to them. I love these guys. Acts 4.31, they, they return. They give an update of the things that are going on. And, and all this group of the, all these Christians are like, well, let's pray for that type of boldness. Let's pray for that courage so that we could tell people about Jesus as you do. And it says they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Goes on to say in 32, now a full number of those who believe were of one heart, one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them were their own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Acts 6, the church is growing. Some widows are being left out, and so the apostles are like, hey, we, we need you to appoint some men, and they need to have a good reputation and be full of the Holy Spirit. One of those men is Stephen. Stephen gets arrested because he keeps proclaiming the gospel by the power of the Spirit. Then when they're about to stone Stephen, he just starts preaching Jesus from all of the Old Testament. It's like that was pointing to Jesus, that's pointing to Jesus, that's pointing to Jesus. Acts 8, 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Okay, so now it's gone from Jerusalem to Judea to now Samaria. They pray for the Sumerians to receive the Holy Spirit. We're not told exactly what happens, but that there was this guy named Simon who's a magician who tries to pay for this power. So obviously he's seen something that's happened to them. And then it says uh, that they uh, basically go on and keep preaching about Jesus. Acts 9, the apostle Paul is converted and blinded for three days. God calls a disciple named Ananias to let go lay hands on him to regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Why? Because verse 20 said, immediately Paul was proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Are you getting the picture? Acts 10, Peter proclaims the gospel to the Gentiles, spirit fills. All the Jews are like, whoa. Okay, so we've gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. Now we're to the Gentiles, we're to the, to the, to the world. And it falls on them and they're like, oh man, this is, this is pretty wild because it's no longer just Jews in Jerusalem. It's not just Jews in Judea. It's not just Samaritans. It's now Gentiles. And it says that they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Peter says, go get baptized, y'all. Every single time. Sometimes there's tongues. Sometimes there's shaking. Sometimes there's fire on the head, weird stuff that we don't even know what it means. Every time, 
people are fueled from mission. Every time. Without fail. People get the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, fueled by the Spirit, driven by the Spirit. They start living their life in a different way. Why? Because they've received the influential power of the Spirit who is now using His people, calling them, sending them, empowering them to tell people about Jesus who do not yet know Jesus. So Peter says, they're not drunk. They're not being controlled by, led by, influenced by alcohol. No, this is what was promised. This is God's people being filled with His Spirit. They are being controlled by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, influenced by the Holy Spirit. And so for those of us who are Christians, those of us who have repented, placed our faith in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. Question, what is driving your life? Is it guilt? Is it shame? Is it materialism? Is it greed? Is it fear and anxiety? What is driving your life? Because the gospel that I read tells me that I have God the Holy Spirit. And therefore, guilt no longer has to drive and control me. My past no longer has to define me. The grip of materialism can be lifted off of my hands as I see not just my present, but I see the future of where God has promised to take me. And I realize that nothing in this world is coming there but my relationship with God. I don't need the approval of others anymore. Because the Father who is my Father and has sent His Spirit into my life tells me that He loves me, is for me, will never leave me, nor forsake me. And I don't know if you've realized, the world doesn't like us much. It's not getting easier to be a Christian, it's getting harder and probably will continue to get harder. So what do we need? We need to be fueled by, driven by, led by the Spirit of God who reminds us, hey, you don't get your identity. You don't get your approval from them. I've made you. I've saved you. I'm the one who died. I'm the one who raised. I'm the one who ascended. And I'm the one who sent the Spirit of the living God to live in your hearts. Will you be influenced by the Spirit of God? And then secondly, I think we also get a stimulating power. It's not just an influencing power, but it's a stimulating one. Back to the alcohol analogy. And this is not a, uh, if anybody here is a drinker, I'm not having a crack at you. This is just what Paul used, and I think we saw it here. In our, in our culture, why, why do so many people go to, the, go to the drink? Why do so many people drink alcohol? There's a number of reasons, right? Uh, some people drink alcohol to help deal with their problems. They want to numb the pain. And so if they can get home from work and quickly open up those beers and just, it's just constant. It's just like if you drink, we, we've got a particular person in our church who is an alcoholic and they will say it was just to deal with their past and their pain. It's the only way they could deal with it. They had to numb it. And the only way to numb it was through some type of drug. And so they would medicate themselves. Uh, people in our culture do it to relieve tension. Maybe that's some of us in the room. We get home, it's like, oh, it's been a busy day. It's, 
<laughs> that's culture. It's like, man, I'm busy. Life's hard. I know how to relieve that. Just a couple of drinks. Again, I'm not having a crack at you. People also drink to gain courage. Uh, this was certainly me before I was a Christian. I'd see a, an attractive woman, and I'd be like, I ain't an attractive guy. Not at all. So there's no chance. However, if I drink enough, I'll think maybe I'm attractive enough, and I'll walk over and, hey, yeah. And she'd be like, yeah, you're, you're both an idiot and unattractive. Um, maybe you've got that, that speech you've got to give, that thing you've got to go to, and you're stressed, and it can be like, if, if I just take the edge off, right? People drink to remove depression and despair. There are many reasons why people in our culture drink. But in every single one of them, they're masking reality. It's not helping the reality, it's just masking it. In, in none of those cases is alcohol actually helping at all. It's doing the absolute opposite. It's removing someone from reality so they don't have to deal with reality. And what you see in this is the Holy Spirit actually does the opposite of that. The Holy Spirit goes... I'm not going to mask reality. I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to open up your eyes to see the eternal kingdom of God. Do you see? So alcohol doesn't help with anger issues, doesn't help with shame or guilt. But if you think about the Holy Spirit, when He comes upon us, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and God, God the Holy Spirit applies the truth of God to our lives, we no longer are driven by guilt or our past. Why? Because our past has been forgiven. It's done. There is nothing in my past that has not been dealt with already. So I am now free from it, right? Has anyone else here got a past? It just wants to cling on and hold on to you. And it stops you moving forward. And, and God the Holy Spirit comes and fills our hearts. And because of what Christ has done, our past is not only forgiven, it can now be used to be the witness for God. Because if God can use me, someone who's had this, been through this, here's the testimony of what God does in the lives of ordinary broken people like you and me. It becomes a testimony. We're no longer driven by fear. We have Christ who conquered the grave and promised to always be with us and never leave us nor forsake us. So we have the Holy Spirit with us in every single situation. So when you wake up tomorrow morning and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this day. If you're a Christian, God, the Holy Spirit has filled you. He is with you. Do not be afraid. This is how the Holy Spirit works. The Spirit helps us face reality. It heightens our thinking. The Holy Spirit uh, heightens our focus. So let's go back to the story. How do, the, how do these disciples go during the, the process of Jesus being crucified? How are they going? Reminder, not good. Peter, like, oh, mate, I'm there for you. I'll go to jail for you, Jesus. These other disciples, weak as. Like they're North Lakian disciples. I'm an inaugural, I'm an inaugural guy. I'll, I'll, I'll go to jail for you and I'll even die for you. And then what's he doing? Oh, there's a little eight-year-old girl around the fire. I'm scared of... 
Like the guys, the guy is fueled with fear. All of his disciples fueled with fear. They're running away. And yet you read the book of Acts and they're doing the opposite. Why? Because they've been fueled, filled with. They've been baptized with. They have God the Holy Spirit and they move from being fear-filled people to being courageous men and women. Not because they are great, but because that's what God the Holy Spirit does. He comes into your life and He changes you. He helps you to see things in a different light. Notice how many times it says that they're just giving their stuff away. They're just opening up their homes. They're just sharing all of their money, sharing all of their wealth. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He says, wine, alcohol, pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant. It is a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol and you will always find that is classified among the depressants. It is not a stimulant. Further, it oppresses first and foremost the highest centers of all the brain. They control everything that gives man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a man behave uh, at his very best and his highest. What the Holy Spirit does, however, is the exact opposite. If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into a textbook of pharmacology, I would put him under the stimulants. For that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates every faculty, the mind and the intellect and the heart and the will. This is what we have because of Pentecost. We have God, the Holy Spirit, who comes to us and he starts to change our desires, starts to change our thinking, starts to change the way we see the world We become convinced of the death, burial, and resurrection. We are filled with the Spirit, and then we start to live God's ways. And listen, if on that journey some tongues happens, if on that journey some fire on the head and some wind, if some shaking happens, that's up to God. What we never see them do is go back and try and recreate any of those things. Those things can happen if God so chooses. It's His, it's his, his desire, His will. He'll do the stuff. All he tells us to do is make sure that we repent, believe, baptize, and have the Holy Spirit, and then get about the mission of God. And as we go about that, he will do those things. He will decide if you want to pray for someone, maybe they get healed, maybe they don't. If, if you're going to somebody, you want to bring the, like the, the word of God, you want to preach the gospel, and you're like, I don't know how to do it. Pray that God, the Holy Spirit who's with you, would fuel you. Empower you to, to have the right words. So again, I want to ask the question to us and Ogre Baptist. What is driving your life? What is fueling you for how you live, how you go to work, how you raise your families, how you spend your money? What is driving that? And I think Acts 2 and the story of Pentecost would say, make sure... It's the death and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. God, we are so thankful, not only for 
Jesus dying for us and raising again, but also for ascending into heaven at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and sending to us God the Holy Spirit. That we don't have to live this Christian life on our own, in our own strength. God, when we look at the mission that you gave these first disciples, that is a mission they could not accomplish. When when we look at what you call us to, how you call us to live, a life of righteousness and holiness, God, a a life that is open-handed with our wealth and our possessions, God, we cannot live the life you call us to live apart from the Holy Spirit. And God, we sure as heck can't save anybody. We can't convince anybody that you really died and you really rose again for them. We can't do that, but you can. And you can use ordinary men and women like us to be about your purposes in this world. So that we can have more Joes get baptized in this church. So we could hear more stories of of men and women who did not know you, did not believe you, would come to believe that Jesus truly is the son of the living God and died on that cross and rose again. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be your witnesses in this world. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for helping us, for empowering us, influencing us and stimulating us to new life and new ways of living. I pray you would help us to receive you and to walk with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.